Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, welcome back to Folk Pie. I'm Liam Noble, and today we're back to medieval Florence in the latter half of the 1300s. I'm also recording on different equipment today, so if my voice sounds a little bit fucky, I'm sorry. Things are starting to pick up. Today we're talking about something a little special to my heart, mostly because I sank so much time into researching these guys and wrapping my head around exactly what they were. Oh yeah, we're diving headfirst into the guild system of Florence. You've got banking, you've got merchants, you've got syndicates of blacksmiths and wool makers, and this social organism, the guilds, are about to give birth to European capitalism and then be consumed by its own child. Compelling? Now, I have a lot of curiosity about the guilds, the way they operated, sure, the ranks and ways of leveling up from apprentice to master, yeah, 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 how the medieval guilds were integrated in the municipalities and were the gut of the social fabric, yes, okay, you got me. But what really throws me through a loop is the bad rap they get from a lot of historians. They stifled innovation, it's said, because entrepreneurs weren't able to put together historically progressive factories because these damn guilds were in the way. Here's a Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica quote that really illustrates my irritation with how guilds are perceived. Quote, Guilds helped build up the economic organization that Europe needed to make the transition from feudalism to embryonic capitalism. The guild's exclusivity, conservatism, monopolistic practices, and selective entrance policies began to erode their economic utility. Masters set ridiculously high standards for apprentices to become journeymen and journeymen to become masters. The guilds worked exclusively for their own interests and sought to monopolize trade in their own locality. They were frequently hostile to technological innovations that threatened their members' interests, and they sometimes sought to extinguish commercial activities that they were not able to bring in under their own control." End quote. Okay, well that is looking at the guilds through a very specific lens which takes for granted the progressive nature of the modern liberal economy and perhaps betrays the stain of modernity. What if we were to choose a different lens through which to view these things, the guilds, the arti? What if we appreciate them for what they were? Look fairly and squarely at the benefits, its organically self-regulating economic nature, uh, development of the primordial economy, something articulate and real, a functioning and vibrant economy that exists outside the context of capitalism. That's fascinating, and that's the story I want to tell. It's this rather free, autonomous economy, unburdened by either real exploitation by a state structure or parasitical capitalism. And if you want to know where capitalism was born, it's here, within the Arte de Cambia, the Money Changers Guild. And that cannot take off without the thriving and alive guild syndicate economy as a host, a nurturing mother that eventually it would grow out of its control, turn around, and encage the free laboring guilds it was born from, enslaving them, breaking them, and scattering their members into Factories, those places of centralized production, glorious by their efficiency, a real social technology, a social rubric. 
I began, I think, in episode one by comparing them to the trade unions of our time. But that isn't a perfect comparison. The trade unions were the associate groups formed by humans in duress, forced like mules into the industrial factory system. It was a self-defense mechanism. No, uh, the guilds are voluntary associations among alike craftsmen to establish a collective monopoly. Okay, it's the first time I've ever used the word collective monopoly, but I'm actually, it kind of hits the nail on the head. I'm going to keep rolling with that. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. The place, the Italian quadrangle. The time, the up-and-coming 1370s. The White Company and John Hawkwood. Just like last time, we're going to start out with a character on the periphery of Florence, whose fate would intertwine with the cities. And this guy is really useful to us because he's not affiliated with the guilds, like not at all. But it's not so dissimilar in its own way. It's September 1356. In an English army camp, there's a man sitting there on the split log in front of the fire, laughing uproariously with his companions. It's clear he's a soldier. He's heavy set with shoulders like a bull, quiet, intelligent, cruel eyes. His mop of chestnut hair is wild looking. He wears a huge satchel that holds his gear and the tunic stained from weeks of heavy wear out in the fields. He's bossing around the two subordinates with him. When his cup empties, he forces it into the hands of the young boy sitting on the floor near him, his page. Refill, he cries. His name is John Hawkwood. Hawk is in bird. I'm not kidding. That's his real name. John Hawkwood is the son of a landowner from Essex, England. And he's a soldier, a longbowman, in the army of the Black Prince, the son of Richard III. He was called the Black Prince. Sick moniker. They were an English army fighting in France, against France. And the event that's about to play out will be an inflection point in the Hundred Year War, ending the first phase. And it's about to change John Hawkwood's life as well. In the morning, blinking against the light, Hung over and wobbling, the soldiers grab their equipment and start breaking down the camp. They're on the move. The army of the Black Prince, a multinational army of English, Anglos, Normans, and the Gascon, the region in the southwest of France, all together as one. Our story begins with some symmetry where the last one ended, the Battle of Poitiers. Remember, big man Duke Walter of Brienne, he dies here, big time. The French are handed a devastating, war-ending defeat by the armies of the Black Prince. John II, King of France, is captured as a prisoner of war. Peace is declared immediately, and then a more formal treaty emerges, ceding all of the Gascon to uh, the English as a subservient region. All of the armies of the Black Prince, all the armies of England, Gascon, and Normandy, the thousands upon thousands of soldiers in the pay of England are demobilized. The pay cuts off. But John Hawkwood emerged as a talented leader. He knew how to fight well, and he understood uh, tactics, and had a keen sense for how to win a battle. What else is he going to do if not be a soldier? Return home? Boring. It's 1360. And the veterans are milling about aimlessly in France, all these unemployed warriors. 
The English, the Germans, the Gascons, the French decide to form an independent company, a free company, a mercenary company. It was called the White Company after the white tunics these soldiers wore, and it's about to be infamous. John Hawkwood was elected by his fellow veterans as the White Company commander. So long as he could guarantee pay and steady leadership, he was in charge. How was he going to keep the pay coming in exactly? Well, the White Company lived by extortion, marching around, threatening to raise towns if they weren't paid off. And there are a lot of them too, 3,500 cavalry and 2,000 men uh, in 1361, which is a lot for the time. Their weapon of the day was the giant lance, and the soldiers were organized around these huge, heavy weapons. They worked them in teams of three. The man-at-arms who handled the lance, this huge spear, would need to be strong. No kidding. And the man at his side was a squire who handled and maintained the shield and armor as a sort of auxiliary to the main weapon. And a page, a servant, usually 7 to 14 years old, after which they could move up to become the squire. So the man-at-arms, squire, and page team was the small unit on the battlefield, and they formed contingents led by a corporal, uh, which was subcontracted or elected. On top of that was the administrative staff and uh, treasurer, notaries, and chancellors to manage the contractual aspects of the free company. You have these crazy battles of two armies meeting in the field, but the armies were running with children, ordered about to do the small tasks as needed so the big guys could focus on fighting. Uh, women moved in these traveling armies as well, the mothers of the pages keeping care of their child, uh, wives who attended their warrior husbands doing uh, washing and cleaning of wounds, repairing injuries with herbal remedies, prostitutes too, making their living. And of course, uh, adventurous women who went just for the sport of it. The medieval armies were an interesting spectacle. I would call these armies a rather democratic structure, you know, for like roving bands of warriors. It's not an imposed thing. It's a common goal arrangement. They're after the money, kind of like pirates in that way. So why are we talking about mercenaries in our uh, guilds episode? Where are all the blacksmiths I promised? Well, these mercenary armies are like the guilds of warriors. They're the soldiers guild, and they did not stay put waiting to be hired out by someone. They ran around the countryside, turning their skill into money. They had the confidence in their capacity for violence. And who was going to stop them, except for maybe other hired mercenaries? And then what? You're just going to be bored and unpaid also. The cycle continues. These mercenaries, called condalieri, uh, played a huge role in this period, in warfare, sure. Their name, condalieri, comes from the Italian word for contract, as they were hired to do the job. But they played a big role in peacetime also, terrifyingly, uh, scaring people and laying waste to anyone who didn't pay them off as they strolled through. They are basically land pirates, and they lived by brigandage, by plundering. But also, during lulls or when they needed money, they would become highwaymen, establishing illegitimate tolls on roads and robbing people who refused to pay them. Mercenaries, knights, highway robbers are really uh, one in the same thing. 
unemployed or bored knights who weren't being paid by a lord would just go out and rob peasants in the field. This is something I had to learn. I always thought that, oh, you know, you kind of need some of these soldiers to hang around so you stay safe. No, these soldiers are the bullies. They are the robbers on the road. We talked last episode about the Catalan Company, who savaged Walter's father. Well, those guys were like the same deal, adventuring, uh, traveling mercenaries. So the White Company hang around uh, Champagne, France for a bit, where they formed, then rolled for Burgundy, then moved within 25 miles of Avignon, where the Pope was living in summer Rome. I think I said this before, but there's a huge span of time where the Pope shacks up in his premier French territory, his Rome away from Rome. And you know who's got money and would make a great target? The Pope. So they threaten to sack Avignon, and the terrified papacy hands over 100,000 florins to John Hawkwood and his free company, Cha-Ching. Then they seize the nearby town of Pont... I gotta look up how to say that. Pont Saint-Esprit, a commune on the River Rhône, and, like, really took it over. The French kingdom could not extract taxes from the commune, so completely had the white company set up shop, and they usurped the authority of the central government of the king, which was, like, really important at the time that they didn't do this, because they were trying to raise funds to ransom the king back from England, who was a prisoner of war still. This, combined with fury over the threatened sacking of Avignon, results in... Red card! Red card! Pope excommunicates the White Company. Uh, But it doesn't last long, though. Actually, the Pope has a better idea. He would forgive them, good Catholics forgive, after all, in exchange for them fighting on the Pope's behalf in Italy, mostly. The Pope had a lot of enemies at the time. It was agreed, and now the Pope had a baller team of total psychos rampaging around the country, destabilizing those papal rivals. Essentially, he just suggested that they go over the Alps, pointing them in the direction of North Italy, because, hey, look how much wealth those Italians have. Uh, Much better than broken, war-ravaged France, don't you think? So our white company ends up contracted out by Montferrat to go wage war against the city of Savoy. And totally kicks the hell out of them. The White Company has proved itself in battle. They're gonna know your name, kid. Meanwhile, at this time, Florence, our beautiful, flourishing city, is consolidating its hold over Tuscany and moving on the city of Pisa. Which made sense because Pisa is uh, downstream on the Arno River and you want that direct sea access as a merchant city. So, John Hawkwood is hired contracted by Pisa to defend against the aggression and expansion of Florence. He marches his white company down through Italy and encamps outside the city with its famous leaning tower, which at the time of this story was not yet totally completed. They'd begun building it like 200 years before this and would finish it in like the next decade. And yes, it was already leaning by this time. But first, they had more pressing problems. The army of Florence approached over the hills. Which army? Well, not Florence's citizens. This was another condottieri army contracted by Florence to press Pisa into submission. Hawkwood is a skilled commander and using dirty military tricks like uh, deception and ambush. After a short clash, the opposing condottieri run away and the soldiers of the White Company give chase. But with the Florence hired army on the run, the White Company giving chase ends up looting uh, the beautiful 
uh, Mugello Valley and the town commune of Pistoia. The real prize here is not the glory of battlefield victory, which seems like a risky inconvenience, but rather the unprotected towns as they plundered deeper into wealthy Tuscany. The White Company presses on towards Florence. Oh, you can just taste the wealth of Florence coming their way. Imagine how much you could demand extorting a city like Florence. But... Florence hasn't survived this whole time for no reason. They were loaded rich, wealthy, avaricious, in the priory of bankers, merchants, and high art guilds arranged for a dazzling expenditure to put down this ridiculous white company raider of Anglos and Gascon and whatever Italian friends they had picked up along the way, all those who had just frustrated them in Pisa. Galeato Malatesta organized the defenses of the city. He's a famed condottieri commander. 4,000 mounted knights and 11,000 infantrymen were hired to deal with this pesky Hawkwood, and they took to the road to head the White Company off. But, you know, it's Italy, and we don't have to do everything today, right? Manana, manana. Oop, that's Spanish. I mean, domani, domani. It was a scorching hot day, and the warrior company hired by Florence stripped off their armor to bathe in the Arno River. Gonna take a dip. Galeado Malatesta was famous, but elderly, and had a fever, I guess, and succumbed to an afternoon nap in the sun. <laughs> In the middle of the day, the 15,000-strong Italian mercenary army was basking in tanning in the hot weather, no fortifications set. Pisan spies reported this scene to Hawkwood, who, being outnumbered 3 to 1, must have been like, bro, Bruh. and decided this was the best chance he was going to get, and launched an attack. Now, from a military tactics point of view, it seems obvious that Hawkwood would just destroy the sleepy Italian mercenaries, and he kind of deserves to win this for that reason. I can't imagine how much money the Florentines were paying for this condottieri army to advance towards the enemy, then fall asleep on the riverbank. But no, it did not go that way. The brutal heat which had put the Italians to sleep also exhausted the German, French, and English fighters, who in their heavy war garments overheated. Now, sleepy boy Malatesta had delegated two mercenary officers to protect the camp while he dozed, and they arranged some Genoan archers to watch the road from Pisa. And they spotted, soon, the encumbered, panting, white company soldiers trudging towards them from, like, so far away. And they raised an alarm, firing into the white company from a safe but still very lethal distance. The Florentine camp sprang to life, grabbed their weapons, and entered the fray. Hawkwood ordered the English horse-riding knights, uh, the sort of uh, medieval mobile infantry, to drive straight into the center of the Florentine camp. And they did, charging into them and wrecking havoc. And Pisa's own soldiers, who came with them, charged in also. But Malatesta's own knights ran around the White Company, and the Florentines had hired so many that they could just envelop anything the White Company could throw at them. And those knights reached the company's tender supply lines from Pisa in the rear. While the Genoan crossbows continued to pick off people from nearby ruined buildings like little snipers. 
Through a superior move, the Florentines totally encircled the portion of the army that had rode straight into the camp, which was like a sizable number, and cut them off. John Hawkwood wisened up to the situation and ordered the White Company to retreat! For God's sake, run! leaving the Pisan foot soldiers totally abandoned in the field of battle, becoming victims of a brutal reprisal uh, by the condottieri. The road to Pisa was wide open, but Malatesta decided to pass up the opportunity and uh, reconsolidate his army. And besides, we'll do it Donati. I want to take a nap. The White Company retreated to a nearby abbey and licked their wounds, many of them just dying. Pisa, which was downstream of the river, learned of this stunning defeat by the sudden appearance of dead Pisan soldiers floating down the Arno River, their city sons passing goodbye as they went out to sea. Analytically, this is kind of curious because generally surprise attacks go really well, but they couldn't pull it off, and this one was a remarkable failure, so it goes. Famously, this battle... Cascina is the subject of a painting by Michelangelo, which depicted a group of naked men leaping out of the Arno River where they had been bathing, hearing the trumpet warning of a surprise attack and throwing on their armor. Now, the Pisans weren't paying them anymore because they, they failed, and the White Company, needing money to retain their large body of troops because mercenaries, starts the Great Raid of Tuscany marauding the army all around the Italian hills, going from town to town, city to city, demanding, give us all your money you have, or we're going to burn your shit to the ground. And they weren't lying either. They're pissed. Do it. He's crazy. He'll do it. It's just like the old days in France. The Florentines just go ahead and pay off John Hawkwood with like 130,000 florins, actually outbidding the Pope. Uh, Cheaper to just pay him off than pay an army to fight him. And that's a lot of moolah. The Italian cities, though, were pissed and paranoid overall. They suspected that the Pope was behind this whole deal and had sent John Hawkwood upon them to weaken them. Okay, well, I mean, he kind of had, having directed them to go down to Italy in the first place. In any case, the cities, Florence and Milan, form a defensive agreement against the Pope. And other cities join it, and it becomes a full-blown war confederation of Siena, Pisa, Luca, Arenzo, and the Queen of Naples. Whatever this pope's intentions had been, and be fair, they weren't innocent, even though his name is innocent, it was the raiding and extortion of Hawkwood's white company over Tuscany that had set off a whole new conflict. This would be the War of the Eight Saints. The Italians versus the Pope from Avignon, France. And the Pope ordered the White Company into its contract to clean up some mild rebellions in the rear so they could go fight, and to personally escort the Pope. But Hawkwood is a mean double dealer. Sorry, Pope, Hawkwood only has one god, hard specie. Instead of working for the Pope, he uses this trust to take control of some of the Pope's castles and loot them. When they had so trustingly let the infamous White Company in through their gates, the whole situation now is just totally chaotic. There's no loyalty here. Hawkwood also murdered a bunch of civilians around this time in incidents that were recorded as bloodbaths of unarmed people. So that's not cool. Goddamn, they're like uh, they're like PMC Wagner, LMAO. And the Florentines, scheming in the Priory, were like, 
okay, let's take these lemons and make some limoncello. They're a city government of bankers, after all, and they know how to account for risk. Unlike dumbass Pope Gregory X, they said, hey, Hawkwood, here's the deal. We're sick of all this shit. You fight for us. We'll pay you, we'll forgive all of your betrayals, and we'll give you a pension for when you're an old man and can't fight no more, and we'll give you Florentine citizenship. Doesn't that sound lovely? Crafty, crafty bankers. You gotta love this. Instead of, you know, just promising Hawkwood money or paying more money or more money, which he can just take anyway or take and then betray you, offering a pension is a defanging. It appeals to the personal vulnerabilities of old age it's some real shit it says you're under our care now there's something very intimate and desirable about a pension think about that though break the contract and the pension goes away that future security about oh you know what if what if i'm get old and like infirm and shit in a snap turn of events and from here on out the bankers control the white company Crafty, crafty Florentines. And I'll also note about this time, John Hawkwood has a nice strategic marriage. The daughter of the famous Milan family, Visconti. She was Donina Visconti, and she's described as a forceful character on equal terms with John Hawkwood. She did not take any shit from this old mercenary. She had four children, but John himself probably had a lot more spawns out there in the world. Half English, half Italian little bastards from his many mistresses and, let's be honest, sexual victims. Heading into the 1380s, Hawkwood was an old man. He owned properties from his family in England that were handed down to him, but he lived in Tuscany, being known by his Italianized name, Giovanni Acuto, meaning literally John the Sharp. And he is settled down with his nice Florentine-provided pension, although they would never let him in the city. That was forbidden. They... No, John does not come inside the gates. Well, he sort of settles down. He actually really just keeps fighting. Uh, As an old guy, he will go to war again as the commander under the pay of Florence. And you can just see by this time that they just totally own this guy, controlling the purse strings of his fate. And he goes off fighting Milan on their behalf in the 1390s. He's in his 70s, commanding troops in the field. God damn. Doesn't live long after this, though. He dies in 1394 in his luxurious Tuscan uh, country manor, 71 years young. Apparently, they threw him an ornate funeral in Florence for one of the conquering heroes that Florence managed to conquer. Almost like that elaborate funeral is really just them celebrating themselves. Do I have a pithy wrap-up statement? I don't know if I do. Thank you, John Hawkwood, for your bizarre adventuring and general thuggery. It makes for an enlightening story about this wonderfully bizarre time and place. Now on to the real meat and potatoes of this episode, what we've all been waiting for so patiently. The guilds, baby. How I'm going to approach this is by laying out their purpose. The nitty-gritty of an individual's small-picture experience in the guild, how the guilds worked big-picture, and the sites of tension in the guild system. We might be familiar with the general idea of guilds through pop culture. In the Wizard of Oz, they got the Lollipop Guild, and Star Wars, they got the Bounty Hunters Guild, Skyrim's got the Thieves Guild... 
There's uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld is loaded with guilds as a civic and economic unit. Spot on. And famously in the Venture Brothers, there's the Guild of Calamitous Intent. You're in the guild, aren't you? I don't know what the guild means. Tell me about it. I don't know any more myself. Echoes of them are still in the cultural memory, even if they are very faint. And I really want to throw some context out there when I say that our first clue as to what guilds are is that they are not unique to Europe. They pop up all over the world in places where things get made and people work and skills are passed on. They naturally emerge as these artisan craftspeople in Florence or Bangladesh or Kyoto or Guangdong start getting talented and hone their skills. There's a strong diversity of how these things look or work. But they're all working off the same purposeful rubric. They share a reason for being. So what is a guild's purpose? In the purest, most relevant sense of it, it's an occupational association, a club for people of alike skills, whether it be woodworking or stone cutting or accounting or paralegal necessities, as a foundational base to develop off of, a home base of stability from which to flourish. These guilds are formed for goals of mutual aid and benefit to make sure all your brothers and sisters of the art have steady employment and full bellies, and for protecting professional interest as a collective. It's the benefit of cooperation rather than self-interest. So historically, guilds can be read as a social development of economic cooperation. Cool. So guilds are a natural product of artisans and craftspeople working together with a common goal. Look out for each other, keep prices stable, and protect the skill as an art. Wherever the economy starts developing into specializations, we might view specializations or divisions of labor as an evolution into more and more niche branches as these local economies flourish and and artisans pursue their craft into fine arts. This specialization is a playfulness and an experimental aspect to the economy. Picture it like a tree whose limbs and twigs go in many different directions as it gets stronger and more advanced as a whole. Here's a scenario to really tease this idea of uh, a guild out. You, the listener, have an interest in glass blowing and you're pretty good at it. You live in a town. Well, I live in Vermont, so I'm picturing a Vermont town. And there's a couple other glass blowers in the area. A lot of glass needs to be made. People are always dropping their cups and shattering them, and kids are knocking baseballs through windows. So there's a dependable demand. You know the other glass blowers. Some of them like to make uh, window panes. Others are skilled making decorative plates. Still others make elaborate and curious smoking implements. So you and the other glass blowers sit down to talk. The purpose is we need to preserve our skill, make sure it can be passed down for the next generation, and make sure we can live comfortably when we're too decrepit to blow glass anymore. And you would want to make sure glass doesn't get too cheap, either. If there's too much on the market in town, then the time we put into making the glass is worth notably less. So, 
Protections for your craft are important, which means going to the town assembly, the political system, and saying, we want a new law. You can only make glass in town if you're part of our glass-making guild. Boom, approved. Now only those in the collective glass guild can make glass, and merchants at this town's market can only sell glass bought from the glassmakers guild. So that's economic security right there. And you can see why they call it a monopoly, but it's it's open for all the craftspeople, so it's not really a monopoly. It's That's why I call it a collective monopoly. It's kind of like an interesting distinction. You make a set number of glass pieces, enough to keep everyone prosperous and stable, not more than that, or your gain will be at your fellow glassmaker's expense. No bueno. There's a balance to be worked towards. Your wealth will only increase with the total wealth of like the economy at large around you this is economics baby and the hierarchy or structural distinctions of guilds is super familiar to modern people still electricians and other trades will know these terms intimately the apprentice comes into it fresh-faced and bushy-tailed ready to learn instructed by the master who runs their specific shop and teaches their method You'd live probably with the master's family, totally immersed in learning the skill. Um, apprentices don't really get paid. You'd be paid in experience, but the family would still take care of you, so it's not like you'd have any expenses anyway. Uh, better off than today's interns, really. Uh, they would take care of uh, food, lodging, all that jazz. Then, when an apprentice has been in tutelage for a few years, they earn the right to be called journeyman and strike off on their own. Not with their own independent practice, uh, but find their own guild's master's workshop to join to do their own work. You know, uh, shop around and find a guy you like who seems nice, who you can work for, who will leave you alone to take your own jobs, uh, hone your own craft, and who, you know, give you good advice and stuff. Notice you can't just go totally laissez-faire and independent. No, there are obligations here. You really have to give up that total freedom for uh, the return of security and comfort. I think a lot of liberal people would balk at this, but here you're part of something bigger than yourself. To have form and structure like a guild means having some limitations. Then, once you've been a journeyman for so many years, you have the opportunity to become a master, which is not something everyone does. It's for the truly competent and artistic of the craft. Those who really understand the skill, how to work the raw or semi-finished material into a thing of dazzling beauty, demonstrating a nearly esoteric understanding of your craft, you would produce a masterpiece. We toss the word masterpiece around today, but in the guild, it means something. It's a demonstration of technical proficiency on a real level. Upon presenting that successful masterpiece, you are recognized by the guild as a master, a master of the art, with a full right to really strike out on your own and begin your own workshop and take on apprentices of your own. The masters would meet in council with the other uh, workshop masters of the guild in their area, Right, they all have their own individual workshops where they meet together to discuss problems or sort things out or just to hang out with their fellow uh, glass-blowing comrades to set or alter guidelines on conduct or discuss standards for finished goods. Right, Glass can't be turned out looking like shit. That looks bad on everyone. Or to discuss how to deal with rogue glassmakers who are undermining the guild's authority. Maybe you can levy fines or something. 
The workshops are federated into a larger guild structure, and this is the real gel of the system. You have a justice system specifically for the guilds, and uh, adjudicating guild law, keeping all disputes in-house. No need to bring the civil law into our affairs, there's a lot of autonomy here. What's more is that the workshops are held in stewardship by the guild itself as an organization, so rent for these shops is low if it exists at all. And the guild is a social core. They run events, have their own symbols and ceremonies. All the families or dependents of the masters are supported by these things. The guilds have civic responsibilities and privileges, so they're just totally threaded into the community at large. The guilds also own, build, and maintain housing for their members, and famously guild halls, social spaces, essentially for or, you know, like communal dining and special occasions. And I gotta ask myself, am I idealizing these things? I don't know. I'm really just going off the sources. They seem pretty cool to me. Kind of wish we had guilds now. I feel like people would be a lot better off, less precarious. Plus, like a bartender's guild, that, that'd be cool as hell. The existence of guilds and their real function kind of subvert the uh, origin myths of capitalism and turn that whole ideology inside out, and for that I do appreciate the guilds. And when I say guild, that's, uh, that is the English word for them, for what this development is called in England. For the other European languages, they were in French, the corps de métier, in German, the zunfte, in Spanish, the gremios, and in Italian, arti, the arts. Now into the historiography. The guilds had also been really big in ancient Rome, uh, and I should mention like well before that. And the Byzantium that survived Rome was well known for its plethora of collegia or guilds. Uh, thing was, they kind of faded out for a long while in Western Europe after the disintegration of the Roman Empire, and the material complexity of the world had, you know, collapsed. It had become an ideological civilization oriented around the dominant Christianity, so there wasn't really much of a place for the guilds in this world yet. Not to say that they didn't exist in small pockets or for short times. I'm sure they did in some form, but they weren't articulate or big enough to leave much behind in the way of sources. But um, after the year 8-900, Islam is starting to pick up steam. Traveling merchants are recovering. Long-distance trade was being reformed. Uh, movements of goods and raw materials was picking back up. This is when the first hard evidence of guild formation can really be pinpointed in Europe. It's part of a larger system developing. And their golden age, their strongest flourishing, was between like 1100 and 1600. After that, well, we'll get to that. Okay, so these guilds were, like, official within their cities or towns, and they had a monopoly on their particular skill. Like, if you were a carpenter, you were in the carpenter's guild. Nobody's out carving and making chairs for customers if you weren't part of the guild. It just wasn't done yet. It just wouldn't make any sense. Not only were there huge drawbacks being on your own with no safety or support, uh, but also there were rules against it. The guilds are the political system. The guildsmen are the leading citizens of the city of Florence. The Signoria Priory of the Free City of Florence was the guild system. 
We know that in Florence, as the guilds became more wealthy and more prominent, the power they could bring to bear started to displace the networks of old aristocrats and feudal families. And the guilds basically came to govern the city. The city councilors, the priors, were drawn directly from this guild system. This happened all over Europe, but generally they weren't as successful as in Florence. In Spain, in Valencia, there was a huge blow-up war between the gremios, who wanted political autonomy, and the general power of the nobility and their Castilian state based on the king, who wanted monopoly and for the artisan workers to shut up and work. Detecting a pattern here, at this period of prosperity, the urban centers are really starting to pick up steam. Their economic cycles are uh, growing in power and ambition, and they're demanding rights away from the old lordly ones of the castles. In Germany, this exploded into the Zumta Revolution, open political strife, and this is basically the same thing as is happening in Florence, Dig. Uh, Women were not excluded from the guilds totally, but they were politically dominated by men because, you know, medieval Catholics, patricentric, all that jazz. Women did work alongside men in the guilds, that's the truth, and there were professions that were exclusively women like weavers, silk spinners, and other zones within the textile industry and around Europe at large. Right. Within the guilds, apprentices uh, begin having very few rights. You've got to prove yourself. But that pales in comparison to the condition of the poor, craftless workers who are basically subjects of the guild, paid irregularly based on circumstance and more or less depending on unsteady employment and the charity of the religious institutions. Not very equal, but within the guilds, it was harmonious to a large extent, the tension that erupted in the coming class conflict, spoiler alert, were between the different guilds, not wars within the hierarchy of journeymen versus masters, but between guilds and disenfranchised laborers, i.e. the Chiampi, or guilds of merchants versus guilds of toolmakers, or what have you. So, if we can imagine, the guilds were further broken down into individual workshops, the little stalls or rooms along a street or deep in an alleyway, and they were grouped together. Every guild had their own little part of the city that they collected around. If you today go to an old European city, a street in one of those old town neighborhoods will be named like Glassworkers Street, because that's where the workshops were at. In Barcelona, in the old city, there's the Carrer del Mieres, which means uh, Mir Road, where the mirrors were sold, a shopkeeper's guild. Speaking of hierarchies, the order of the craft guilds were important. Let's get that straight. In Florence, the division of major arts uh, v. minor arts is a classic reflection of that sweet, sweet division of labor. Are you working with your head or working with your muscle and sweat? For the major arts of Florence, we have judges, lawyers, and uh, notaries. These types were well-educated at the legal university at Bologna or uh, similar places. The wool guild uh, containing the wool merchants. Uh, These guys are a really dynamic sort, the merchants, and they are spread across all the different guilds who do all the different things. There's the bankers and money changers guild. Oh, Lord, these guys are tip-tops. 
they grew up around handling the money of the merchants, and we'll talk a lot about them in the next episode when we get to the Medici clan. For now, all you have to know is that a lot of Florence's top citizens were bankers. Florence was a banking city, and a wool city, so the wool is important too. Physicians and pharmacists' guild also included painters who bought their dyes at apothecaries, and shopkeepers who sold spices and medicines. And the Farriers and uh, Skinners Guild, which is mostly the merchants and high-level finished products crafting and dealing in the trade of expensive animal skins for years. There's a distinction in Florence of middle arts, if we want to get technical with it. Those would be the butchers, blacksmiths, shoemakers, stonemasons and woodcarvers, and retail, cloth dealers, and tailors. Finally, we get to uh, the lowly minor arts. These guys are the majority of the economy, citizen population-wise, but have very few political rights. Some rights, depending on when we're talking about, but they probably weren't sitting in priory office most of the time. These would be the innkeepers, tanners, workers of wine and olive oil, lotsmiths and toolmakers, armorers and swordsmiths, bakers and millers and masters of the flower arts, and carpenters. I want to clear something up, something I've been wondering about myself. Notice somebody's missing from the list. The Chiampi, the Wool Carters. They did not have a guild, and in fact, they were kept from starting one. There is a wool guild in the major arts, the Arte della Lana, but the Chiampi were not welcome. Those were for the merchants. Let's talk about why. The Wool Guild was really wool merchants and entrepreneurs, and a few others involved in the end stage of the wool manufacturing process. The wool was bought in North Africa, but mostly England, and transported to Florence, where there were around 20 stages of production before it emerged as finished wool cloth. It would first be sorted by quality, then taken to be washed by wool washers, large groups of men and women who rinsed it out in the River Arno, dried off in the shade, degreased of animal oils by submerging it in urine, beaten with sticks to soften the fibers. Next, it would enter the domain of the Chiampi, the wool carters, those radical sort who straightened the strands into something that could be spun professionally by spinners. The spinners were women uh, working in so-called cottage industry at their homes uh, in the walls of Florence, but often also out in the countryside, towns, and villages. They spun the straightened wool into wire round around a spool, where it would leave them and be moved on to the next step, the weaving on the loom, where it was turned into wool canvas. Then it was taken to wool workshops, where the pieces were reviewed, boiled in soap, and then beaten and pressed by machinery, driven by the power harnessed by the moving Arno River. No joke, and I too was surprised to learn that channeled water was used to drive camshafts to work machines. It is like 1360-1370. So we have a little whiff of industrial machinery in our medieval guilds, huh? It would cycle all around those various specialized workshops, uh, entering for a price and leaving at a price, and those who shuffled them around between the workshops were the wool merchants, the real movers and shakers of this wool guild. The rest of this sprawling industrial organism were either poor or lived by wages, totally precarious. 
Then they would be warehoused, the wool, until they were ready to be passed off to be dyed by the Dyers Guild, who would use either imported or locally occurring materials to dye the hell out of this wool into splendid technicolor fashions. Then it was taken to shops and sold, stamped with ink in a little notice that read Differenzi from Florence, a stamp of authenticity. Okay, can you pick up why the Chiampi were not allowed to have or enter a guild? Because there were a lot of them. There were a ton of people that went into the process of making raw wool into wool fabric. If they had a guild, a collective monopoly on their craft of wool straightening or wool river washing, and or God knows what else, they could bargain on maintaining prices according to their needs. Yeah, we'll card your wool for you at a set rate, and also we're not going to be in a race to the bottom uh, wage-wise anymore. Florence was finance, but Florence was also wool trade and wool production. The Renaissance was textiles, and textiles were the Renaissance. Put on your systems theory cap for a moment. The reason for this uh, superstructural finance economy is the real economy of textile production. Everything, this glorious wealthy system, depended on the huge amount of real things being imported by high demand, produced, and exported. To keep wool moving profitably and fast with big fat returns, the Chiampi could never be properly compensated, because there were just too many of them. If they were all paid for their work fairly, the textile wool trade wouldn't be worth it to the merchants. Instead, the costs of labor were kept very low. See the pattern here? If the Chiampi were an underclass, the money would flow. If they could bargain for their own rights, the money would slow down. The remuneration, compensation for so many bodies and their dependents was just too much. Hence, the Chiampi could not have a guild. This is the unwritten reality, the underlying cause behind the terrible situation of those laborers, and why they would need to rise up and force a change. They had no other choice. They were needed for this merchant's splendor. It could not flow at all without them. Hence, they were kept in a wretched, poor state. This is a seismic tension. The need of both sides to break the other is leading us towards a huge confrontation. And in 1375, it reached ahead and exploded into the city. Florence was about to taste the blade of total class warfare. But before we get there, let's shed some light on those merchants. We keep mentioning them, after all, as wealthy and very powerful leaders in the city of Florence. The merchants. What the hell is a merchant, anyway? In today's 21st century world, a good example would be, like, the, the Amazon website. Not the seller's on Amazon, but like the site itself, that thing between producers and sellers, between sellers and buyers. Merchant is a role that came about because of the inherent reality of prices of things being different in different places. For example, wool is cheap in rural England or Wales, where they're positively swimming in sheep, and expensive in urban Florence because it's being sucked up by all the factories. Finished wool fabric is cheaper in Florence than it is in hinterlands Poland. You'd make a killing buying wool fabric cheap in Florence and selling deer elsewhere. 
Necessarily, these merchants would be cosmopolitan and worldly because they travel, or at least spend a lot of time in the presence of people who travel. They have contacts and knowledge giving them an intuitive read on the changing prices of items across different areas. They know how different world events, a war, a blockade, a famine, a good harvest, will have knock-on effects so they can take good advantage. In terms of primordial economy, these guys are the trade, are the human infrastructure between cities, countryside, regions, polities, across oceans even. If we think about the economy as a dynamic organism, these guys are the ones responsible for the flows of goods moving. There's an incentive there, obviously. There's a lot of money to be conjured as the middleman between supply and demand. That zone in between. And Oh man, when I say in between like that, when I wrote these words on the page for the script, I can tell that I'm really onto something here. It makes my brain twitch. This space in the seam between worlds is the fountain of profit. And doing this research, I really start to see that the real profitable zones are the ones in between the production, in between the doing of things. Money is made based on owning the flow of things rather than making any things themselves. I mean, Jeff Bezos can tell you that. That's his whole deal is owning the Amazon store's algorithm. He gets like a 40% cut off everything. This is the zone of the merchant. Beyond that, this is the essence of capitalism. And what is capitalism? Well, it's coming into play. And okay, I guess we'll have to touch on this sooner or later. Best to get it out of the way now. So I'll take a whack at it. What is capitalism? Well, I like Ferdinand Burdell's approach. Of course I do. When dealing with the much overused, perhaps overapplied word capitalism, much like feudalism, which was a word invented in hindsight, apparently by medieval French legal scholars, capitalism didn't really become common parlance until like the 1920s way after it had, as a system, basically wrapped its suckers all over the world. One might say capitalism is a way of doing things that focus explicitly on the primacy of profit, centering money in your activities and the endless increase of said profit. Okay, it's like money stuff. The word comes from caput, caput, capital, meaning in Latin, head. How many heads you own, the accumulation of heads, and their disposal at your whim and gain. And in ism of heads, uh, belief and association with them, these capits, a capitalism. What it is not, it does not encompass all of reality. It is a system that has much to do with contracts and rents, but also many people live outside of this system. Sharing and cooperation may deal with heads, but choose not to elaborate on a system uh, based on collection of heads. Is this making any sense? I think it's closer to the truth to see it as a way of building power. More than that, a way for powerful types to perpetuate themselves and grow their power. A rule book of power building with its own culture and techniques and fair play and red cards. A modernity, yes, a lifestyle revolving around the trade and gain in heads. 
but relative, of course, to things outside of it. The capitalism is merely a more pure and effective way of that same old power grasping like feudalism. It produces an upper class and is produced by an upper class. Uh, we'll get this out of the way. Capitalism is not the economy. I think we've made that pretty clear. The guilds, in this case, are the economy. And the guilds are not oriented around this capitalism. Rather, capitalism sinks its teeth into the economy, burning hot when it finds that nice cozy place in the liminal zone between economies. It is a way to make money off the economy by monopolizing aspects of the economy for gain. Capitalism is not the business, but instead the loan to the business. It is not the merchant, it is the activities and mentality of the merchant. It is less the loan than the interest on the loan, and the laws, culture, and justice around how that loan and its interest is resolved. So, chew on that. I think that's pretty close to the truth, IMO. Okay, more about the merchants. The longest distances always yield the greatest profit, and the use of the seas kind of turbocharges that dynamic. There's a very famous triangle trade run at this time between uh, Venice to Tunisia to Barcelona back to Venice, the Barbary run. Buy cheap silver in Venice that had been pulled out of the earth in German mines and uh, sell it for gold dust, which is cheap in Tunis, and sell that in uh, Barcelona where gold strap is expensive because they're minting coinage like crazy and, you know, gold. Sometimes you could sell the stuff technically, but the buyers didn't have money on hand. Like, the money itself was just too rare. It's not paper, after all. There's limited coin in circulation. So these medieval merchants would do business on bills of exchange, which is a legal economic technology, a development they got from the Islamic world, the knowledge probably passing through Egyptian Jewish merchants living in Alexandria. The only thing that mattered was that the promise of payment was there. The motto of the time was, quote, time is money. Never leave money lying dead. Sell quickly, even at a lower price, in order to go on another trip, end quote. Gotta keep this circuit going. Notice the system only works if you've got a friendly government led by other merchants and bankers and money men who will enforce your bill of exchange for you. Otherwise, it might just be ordered that the debt be forgiven. No bueno. That's why the Italian quadrangle is so important. That's why everything starts here. The polity is run by the money. Whether you're talking about the champagne fairs of France, the Amsterdam markets, or the docks of the Hanseatic League cities in Germany, uh, merchants would turn out their wares to be bought and sold by other merchants, to be moved farther along on their own circuit, or by consumers looking for baubles, or shopkeepers looking for rare foreign merch. But the real zone of the top-tier merchant was off to the side, on the edge of the market 
marketplace where they would meet and jabber with other merchants and do the real business of swapping and buying stocks in other trades or futures of goods, bushels of wheat that hadn't been sown yet. Sometimes they'd meet on the steps of the cathedral or a piazza, but in other places like Florence or Barcelona, they would have a building specifically for this purpose, a place to exchange stocks, a stock exchange. In terms of merchants, the classic image is, uh, yeah, uh, someone offloading goods in Alexandria, haggling for whatever's relatively cheap there, maybe spices, loading up and sailing for Venice. This is the archetype of the merchant adventurer, the one who sets sail and risks it all, making their fortune by the tides and breeze, always moving around the Mediterranean, hugging the coast, not losing sight of land. We started off talking about the warrior adventurers. Now, just take that rubric of free companies, apply it to merchants, and basically you've got the idea of a merchant's guild. Uh, which I should correct myself here, it's not a substantive big guild of merchants, but rather merchants comprised within many different guilds. The wool merchants in the wool guild, the dye merchants in the dyers guild, they might fight up and down the supply chain for better deals on partially finished goods to move, but essentially they've got the same interest at heart, whether or not they're uh, competing for a larger piece of the pie. Another form of merchant was the more advanced type, those who sponsored the movement of merchants on the sea but didn't leave the port city, instead patiently awaiting their return. They bought shares of active trade vessels and didn't actually make the voyage themselves. They were wealthy enough to buy private storage and warehouses for the goods that were brought to them dealing almost entirely in the high-level finance aspect of the operation, again, reaping wealth in that middle zone between the expectant productive guild and even the seafaring merchant, living in that nowhere zone between the heavy lifting of bales of wool, between the tying of line of ships at dock, between the stained hands of dyers, between the carding of wool, and the florins flowed like the river Arno. The most rudimentary merchant were those small-timers who carried whatever they could load on their packs, or on the pack mule, and travel big distances, out of ports with rare items, into the backwoods of like Kiev or Muscovy, where locals would pay a pretty penny for a debt market. If we want to apply the logic of merchants to that earlier picturesque glassblowers guild scenario we came up with earlier, we, the glassblowers guild, need raw materials like lead and sand and fuel and tools. Scavenging for these things ourselves can only get us so far. Plus, we're sorcerers of glass, not money. Fuck that numbers stuff, that's for nerds. When we finish the glass, we're not going to hawk it at the market in the village common ourselves. I suck at haggling, I don't know about you. Not doing that. Glass is in high demand in the city beyond the mountain, because they're building a lot. But bringing it there myself is a waste of time, and I wouldn't even know where to start. Luckily, there are these blokes whose speciality is buying and selling things. They come by and say, hey, that's nice glass you got there. You know, the uh, Radio Electronics Guild is in big need of glass right now. They can't get enough of this stuff. I'll buy these pieces for 10 each. Okay, we protest. 10? It's hardly worth the material it costs to make. I, I know you can sell it for 20. 
Okay, the merchant acknowledges this. Yes, but I have to make a living also. I'll buy it for 12. 15 is the going rate, we say. I know you can't get it for uh, cheaper around here. The merchant winces. Damn these craft guilds, he thinks, and their unfair monopolies. But uh, business is business. He buys the glass for 15. So, yeah, if you're lucky enough to belong to some guild with a collective monopoly on the art, you're somewhat insulated from the system of the merchants, the money zone, the space in between. Have I gotten off track? No, we're good. So, to this end, the merchants raked it in and became very wealthy. This is one cornerstone of Florence's sublime position, but not the whole picture. The systems that would come into being surrounding, absorbing, and making use of this wealth were the bankers, and that's the core's core of central position in Florence. And at this point, I could start talking about the banks and the Catholic religious doctrinal bans on usury or lending with interest, the art of making money out of thin air. But I think we're going to save that thought for our next episode, which is, you know, on the Medici family. Uh, so we're going to be coming face-to-face with the medieval banking system and the real politique of the Pope anyway. I'm going to save it for then. I might as well end the merchant section by saying, Florence is very important because this is like the first time in history that merchants were the governing structure in a polity. They were free to start developing their own systems of knowledge and culture around money, their own law courts and enforcement of debt contracts. Remember, the bankers collapsed in the 1330s because the sovereign of England was like, fuck my debts. There's no one to enforce that. I'm the fucking king. And the bankers fell apart. And the Florentines don't want that happening again. And this produces in part that sort of uh, decentralized economic liberty ideal ethos that Europe would become famous for. The liberty to pursue their own interests to its conclusion, whatever that might be antithesis of the guilds, the factory and the letting out system. This is how the guilds began to wither and die as autonomous collectives. It didn't happen overnight. This is a process that unfolded over multiple centuries, but it did unfold, and it was called letting out. And what it meant is that the merchants were gaining power against the guilds and warping the economy around their preferred method of doing things, making money fast, consistently, and without considerations for the needs of the artists. Here's how it worked. Merchants were rich motherfuckers, and a Florentine merchant would put out work. They, the merchant, have access to raw materials, boatloads of them, probably a storehouse of the stuff, and would approach an artisan one-on-one, maybe a spinner or weaver in the countryside, somewhere outside the direct observation of the guilds. And the merchant says, hey, you. I'll give you, yes, you. I'll give you raw material to work and part of a wage. And in return, you give me back a finished product of whatever skill you do best. And I'll give you the rest of the wage. And this is very different from how guilds operate. This is private business and occurs outside the monopoly of prices that make guild life so secure for everyone. And the spinner artisan here might be getting a great deal, making probably more than they'd make doing guild work, that's for sure, but it undermines that collective monopoly, that solidarity between guild members. 
The merchant is happy because they can pay less for stuff, which means higher profit after they sell it. And the artisan is happy because they're getting paid more money and pretty consistently. But if this gets any bigger, it's going to start undercutting the whole guild system, whose purpose, I'll remind, was to keep prices stable. Now, this artisan is self-interested, and the prices are changing. There's influence of cheap goods on the market that are really undercutting the artisans, and this is going to kill the guilds in the long term. The towns and cities and guilds would fight this letting out system, forbidding guildsmen from engaging under pain of banishment. Uh, now some examples of, of when this was really happening. In Lucca, in 1400, we have evidence that two silk merchants set up a company. Their goal, to have silk sheets made. Not to buy silk sheets from guilds, but to go directly to independent craftspeople and pay to have them made. In Venice, same time period, master and journeyman carpenters and caulkers came with their young assistants to work for the shipping magnates who owned shares in the ships to be built outside the guilds. Again, there's evidence of contracts signed between individual weavers and merchants under a notary. The merchants will pay and the weavers will weave. No guilds involved. In France, a merchant has lace made at home by women workers. He provided them a certain weight of thread and took back the same weight in lace and sold it to his benefit. This is totally subverting the guild system. You freaks, what are you doing? Alright, I think we've dissected the merchants enough. It's time for the stunning promised conclusion of our guilds episode. Class war in Florence, baby! Alright, I think I've teased this long enough. It's story time. Last episode revolved around a certain Duke of Athens, old Walter VI, invited to the city to subjugate Luca, but instead he just took over the city and started offering rights and privileges to the poor to build his own base of support. And the nobility were like, uh, you're not supposed to do that. That's illegal, stop him. And the citizens rallied to kick his ass out of the city. The wool carters, the Chiampi, got it in their heads that, yeah, we do deserve the right to associate. And all it took was a brilliant orator and strategist, Ciuto Brandini, to strike while the iron was hot. And it wasn't enough. Perhaps they underestimated how things worked in Florence. The rich aren't going to concede an inch unless you are at least as powerful in your own way. So brilliant Brandini was grabbed up and hung by the neck until dead. A minor scuffle, but we remember his name and we remain grateful for his attempt. Now, that all went down in 1345. The year is now 1378. And what's about to break out is the Chiampi Revolt. A successful one, and it lasts more or less until 1382 uh, when it succumbs to reaction, sad face. Now, this story is the story of full-on and self-conscious class war in Florence, something you might expect to see in industrial 1910s Barcelona or something, a street battle between those with all the power and those demanding liberty, those who controlled the money and those who did the work. It would pit the fat and happy merchants against the wool workers who slaved away in a city they had no voice in. It's actually one of the first uprisings for intentional uh, political and economic redistribution in Europe's modern history. Well, those dispossessed workers are going to take the rudder of the city for themselves. 
there's an incredibly brief prelude, and it has to do with that old War of the Eight Saints. But I won't get into it because it's basically uh, echoes of the last episode, and it's time for the good shit. Florence goes to war, ends up spending too much, oh no, we're broke, let's raise taxes on the poor. And the poor are not fans of extra burdens, and the minor guilds were getting restless because not only were they giving up a lot for these oligarchs running the Republic, but also the oligarchs don't, don't even seem to be doing a particularly good job. Like, you have the power, but you're fucking it up, you incompetent banking clan. You're discrediting yourselves. What are you doing? And the money warfare also cemented the rich families who were becoming like small dictators, at least in terms of their word, which they expected to be treated like dictates. And they had in the long depression since 1330, which is like still going on, taken a lot of money out of the city and bought up rural land in fancy manners and kind of like re-feudalized themselves with tenants and everything. So just as it had been back in episode one, the guys running the Priory of Florence were aristocrats, uninterested in city liberty for the commune. And there's a new character on the scene of a family we're going to start hearing more about. Welcome everyone, one Salvestro de' Medici. The Medici were up-and-comers, gente nuova, new people, frozen out from the social circles of the big magnates like the Albruzzi, who were top dogs, leaders of the powerful, influential wool guild who strung the damned Ciampi along. The Medici were like uh, middle dogs. They were bankers affiliated with the Arte del Cambio, the Bankers Guild, and just like the precedent that Walter VI took, Silvestro de Medici would rally the disenfranchised Ciampi to his family's benefit. Okay, solid plan, sort of. The Ciampi and other guildless laborers compose something like one-third of the city's total population. He doesn't really care about their welfare, but he does think that things are boiling to the point that if someone just struck a match, the whole situation would combust, and out of the ashes might arise a powerful new phoenix. Silvestro de' Medici is basically an accelerationist. He had just been elected as Gon Falonier, that critical post, mostly because he was not aligned with the big people and could be a balance against their supremacy. The priory was already in severe crisis. Florence was struggling under debts it incurred, but none of those old fools wanted to do what it took to fix the situation, because that would undermine their place in power and probably lead to their financial loss. So even the aristocratic old families were like, Okay, we do need some sort of opposition to solve these problems. Solving them would be against our own interest, uh, some kind of class treason. Someone else do it, please. We'll hold our noses and wait. So, Silvestro, as Gallen Fallonier, was invited to take the flak and straighten this circus out. And Silvestro's first move was to demand that the old ordinances of justice be reinstated. Remember those? Mostly to the effect of banning the most powerful families from holding office. And they were like, whoa, hold on there, Slick. Don't you think that's going a bit far? I mean, seriously, how do you think that went? They said, uh, no, gone Fallonier. Find another solution, pretty please. Instead, Salvestro de' Medici doubled way the hell down and declared, quote, Wise men of the council, 
Today I wanted to cleanse the city of the wicked tyranny of powerful men, but I am not allowed to do so because my companions and the colleges will not consent to it. And as I am not obeyed in my desire to do good, I consider myself no longer prior, nor gone fallen year. I therefore intend to go to my home. Choose another gone fallen year in my place and do it with God's grace. End quote. The priory erupted. The meeting became chaotic. This whole thing was incredibly public and every citizen knew the score. Another gone fallen year elected and immediately resigning his post. This was a scandal. It was the mother of all scandals. It showed that the government was just totally paralyzed, did not work. This action alone broke the party of aristocrats into bickering and infighting. Some assented and considered it tasteless, but necessary for the city's survival. Others were calling it treason, a coup. At this critical moment in the heat of crisis, the aristocratic consensus fractured because the old ordinances had been invoked, and this caused outrageous confusion. Now, outside, waiting, and ready to hear the results of the meeting, were the crowds of Popolo Minuto, the small people, and they became agitated by the turmoil. The elite families were fucking it up again. They simply can't be trusted to do this. What happened next is recorded to us by Alamano Accioli through the work Chronicle of the Tumult of the Chiampi. He observed, quote, On Sunday, all the guilds gathered together in their shops, and then each artisan elected representatives for the guilds. On Monday morning, the colleges assembled early in the Signoria, and the representatives also came. All that day, they stayed with the priors and their colleges, discussing and framing certain laws. But that day, nothing could be decided, for they could not reach agreement. Thus, on Tuesday, the guilds began to arm themselves. The guild banners were unfurled. This action was brought to the attention of the priory. They immediately chose the 96. When the council was summoned and the 96 chosen, an uproar arose in the square and the people with the guild banners shouted, Long live the people! Therefore, the council decided to turn over the general authority of the priors and the colleges to the captains of the party, to the ten of liberty, to the eight of guard, and to the guild representatives, end quote. What had happened, faced with a mob of lower guilds carrying weapons, waving the banners of their arts, looking for a fight, the big men of the priory consented to a council of 96, representatives from each guild, to give their advice and make their voice heard. It would cool the temperature, but still, even with this, they could accomplish nothing. And those elites remained intractable in their control on the decision-making, and thus the rioting in the street began. Mobs of people ran through the city, setting alight the palace homes of the rich families. This was well-targeted, mind you. The mobs only only torched the homes of the elites most opposed to Salvestro's plan. The Popolo Minuto looked to each other and saw allies. They looked to the Priory and saw their stubborn enemy. They wanted change. They wanted to open up the power. It was a revolution unfolding. The guild workshops acted as units, coordinated, and the rich began to flee the city. The guildsmen went to the commune's prison and released the prisoners, especially the political prisoners, and they began to break away from the control and advice of Salvestro de' Medici. The popolo broke into churches and ransacked them. The social order, last month so concrete, had disintegrated in the rage of the guilds. 
Silvestro, though, was a keen operator and worked to keep ahead of this breakdown. He appeared before the crowds in the piazza and declared himself the leader of the popolo, usurping their revolution, perhaps, if only he could keep hold of the reins. Unilaterally, Silvestro declared new laws. The old magnets could only stay in politics if granted the assent of two-thirds vote from that guild council of 96 representatives, creating a sort of populist gate check. And then he designed a balia, a committee of 80 men, ostensibly to begin repairing the city and quelling the riots, but really a personal retinue of hardened supporters to crush the remaining oligarchic influence. To control the mobs he'd unleashed, he banned the carrying of weapons, but this was basically to no effect. The guilds were patrolling the streets, showing themselves as a force, the real power of the city. The oligarchs, shacked up in the Priory building, begged for new decrees to limit the, the looting, the arson, the unrest, but it was for nothing. A new government was forming on the outside of this building, and the Priors found themselves totally marginalized. But the power of the guilds was not certain, uh, and they became rightfully anxious that they were about to be discarded by their erstwhile champion, Silvestro who might be using them like pawns to shake up the power, but only to reconsolidate it around himself when the energy died down. And this fear meant that they banded together evermore, suspicious of Silvestro, and it resulted in a totally unknown union. The minor guilds formally united with the Chiampi and skinny people craftless workers against the gente nuova bankers. Together, they would have numbers and a real voice. It was the Chiampi's idea, so they're really pulling their weight as vanguards of a popular movement against those elites. We'd love to see it, don't we, folks? Ciuda Brandini, your spirit guide these fledgling syndicates. This was a total anathema to the constraints of Florentine identity. The mobs of Poor men in lower guilds were fused by electrifying nighttime meetings through the shuttered workshops and streets of the city, and they had one goal, the democratization of Florence, and aiming to bring about a more egalitarian politics. The lid has really come off now. Their next step would have to be a master stroke if they were to pull this thing off. And there were elite conspiracies flourishing, reactionary, hushed nighttime meetings where every option was considered, panicked elites desperate to hold on to power, plotting brutal and violent secret action to disrupt this unified uprising. The Priory oligarchs got wind that some big demonstration was being planned for somewhere, maybe everywhere, imminently. And they abducted one poor popolo named Simoncino right off the streets. Simoncino was taken to a discreet location and interrogated and threatened with hanging to learn the plans. All alone in this secret location, Simoncino must have been terrified. These old oligarchs showing their true, cruel colors, waving knives in his face, insinuations of death and dismemberment. Simoncino couldn't take it anymore. He told them dates and locations for the meetings, that there were to be coordinated uprisings in San Spirito with a thousand men or more, Santo Stefano Aponte with 400, San Piero Maggiore with 800 or more, and the last in San Lorenzo would be innumerable. 
He recited the purpose of the people, the mottos they had recited, quote, that the carters, the wool combers and beaters, the dyers, the tanners, the washers and others do not want to be subject to the priors while having no influence on their decisions, that they all wanted to be part of the ruling of the city, end quote. But this wasn't good enough for the cold oligarchs. They wanted names. Who are the leaders? At first, Simoncino wouldn't say, string them up. They cried and subjected Sumancino to the torture of the terrifying strapado, a form of mutilation where the victim's hands are tied behind their back and the victim is suspended by a rope attached to their wrists while weight is added to their body, resulting in the shoulders becoming dislocated. And Sumancino, in his agony, finally gave a name. The leader was Salvestro de Medici. This shocked the priors. They were absolutely gobsmacked. They summoned Silvestro immediately. Explain yourself. But he denied everything, referring to the popolo in the streets as Miniti, hardly worth mentioning. The oligarchs bought it for now, but remained suspicious. In any case, what could they do? Everything was out of their control. Everything outside of the dim-lit torture dungeons and locked gates of the Priory, anyway. But this real abduction and torture had grave consequences for the outmatched Priors, and they were about to break upon the rocks. The oligarchs sent out armed lancers, private retinues, to anticipate the arrival of the demonstration, to ambush them and drive them apart before they could form, terrify the mobs into submission, kill if necessary. But a funny thing happens here, an odd twist of fate, or maybe a brilliant piece of spy work. A lowly clockkeeper of the Priory, the one who keeps time in the big clock, overheard the plotting and ran out into the piazza streaming, To arms! To arms! The Priors are bent on slaughter! Arm yourselves, people! If not, you shall all die! And this, right here, was the big eruption. On the 21st of July... 1378 that exploded everything. Learning of the torture of Simoncino, the popolo were enraged beyond words. They flooded onto the palazzo outside the priory and drove away the armed lancers, trapping the torturous government inside the building. Just like old Walter VI, there was no more escape. They made demands, released the captives. And when there was hesitation, they sent out eager mobs to burn yet more homes of the beleaguered oligarchs. Terrified, the priors released the captives. Simoncino stumbled onto the piazza and was helped away. The popolo demanded the police official handed over to them, the one who had done the torturing to Simoncino. He was pushed out from the priory and into the hands of the crowd, who hung him in the piazza, dismembered him, and cut him into little pieces in front of everyone. Then the Chiampi, the most radical group, presented their formal demands upon the Signoria. Twenty-eight clear and concise demands, I'll have you know. You really have to marvel at these Florentine rebels who are probably not formally educated, but disciplined and working together, as well as any primo example of insurrectionary politics. The demands? Quote, the Wool Carters Guild would be incorporated and autonomous. Three new guild corporations would be formed, one for the carters and dyers, one for the barbers, tailors, and the mechanical arts, and the third for the skinny people who have no crafts at all. They would all be syndicated and have the right to associate, end quote. 
and that from these three new guilds, there should always be two counselors, and from the fourteen lesser guilds, three, and that the Signoria should provide houses where these guilds could meet, end quote. Wow, precise, concise, and clear-cut. But there was one last attempt at double-dealing. The priors inside their priory went over the list and agreed to accept it. But one prior, name unknown to history, excusing himself to check the security of the priory entrance, attempted to flee. The mob outside caught him and cried out, quote, Come out now, all you! We do not wish you to be priors any longer! End quote. The popolo wrenched open the door and stormed into the priory. They no longer trusted anyone. They were taking control. Horrified, the priors disbanded, shocked and despondent. In a matter of days, everything had disintegrated by their own intractability and incompetence. Florence was in the hands of the people. Now, at this point, one leader of the popolo did rise above the flock, and his name was Michele di Lando. Michele di Lando, from among the ranks of his comrades as they surged inside and established themselves, yelled out, Do you want me to lead you? And they cried yes in response. Michele di Lando, standing in the priory, was a sight to behold. According to Machiavelli's written history of the city, he made his offer, quote, barefoot and scantily clad, end quote. A poor motherfucker, basically. A simple carter of wool, authentic Chiampi. Someone who, last year, would have been destined for obscurity, but now has his own nice little Wikipedia page with his own portrait picture, which even Silvestro Medici doesn't have. So, Delando, judging by our contemporary modernity, is big swag. Michele Delando became the new head of government, and I mean, really. He restyled the communal government totally. His first move was to guarantee peace and settle the whole situation down. He commanded that no one was to loot or burn buildings any longer. He was, quote, making and unmaking decisions, holding the keys, locking the city, writing letters and giving orders on his own behalf, end quote. He reformed the seats of the Signoria, four counselors from the lesser plebs, two from the major guilds, and two from the minor arts. Now the center of gravity is with the laborers. He handpicked the men to fill the government councils that acted as checks and balances. Well, checks and balances no longer. He was totally in control, like more centralized around himself than even the oligarch families could manage. With the new Chiampi having their own guild, the number of syndicated men more than doubled, whereas before there were four or five thousand members across the city, now goddamn like 13,000 were affiliates. A huge victory. It's bigger than uh, even the old struggle of 1345 could have imagined. Every member of a major or minor guild could potentially participate in government, or at least be represented. Huge ups. Now, the Chiampi didn't agree with everything. And here we're touching on the ages-old dynamic of self-management versus representation. Michele de Lenin, I mean, Michele de Lando, commissioned a city guard of 1,500 crossbowers to regulate the city, led by knighted figures under de Lando's personal instruction. And these knights were drawn from real nobility types who had, like, you know, the horses and stuff. They were running security for Delando's government. And the Chiampi felt stung. Had they not just proven they had the muscle and intelligence to manage things themselves? What's our guy in the priory, Michele Delando, up to, anyway? 
And the unity of the Chiampi began breaking into factions about how to best run the city that was now all their own. Because, you know, politics. Common goals having succeeded, you've got new arguments to have. The Chiampi formed their own councils out on the streets and in the piazzas to find the consensus voice and find their new interests, seeing how this Delando was quite genuinely now ruling with an iron fist. They reformed the mob and marched on Delando's priory with new petitions that the knights of big burgers and nobility types, those crossbowmen and others, must not serve in the Signoria. Delando refused to consider it and turned them away. Now, representatives of the Chiampi went to Michele Delando wanting negotiations between himself and the buzzing masses. They were allowed inside to the chambers. Meeting Delando face to face, they presented the demands, and at first it went well. But then Delando calmly excused himself, then reappeared, brandishing a weapon. He rushed back towards the representatives and slashed one across the face, screaming, quote, Where are they? Traitors! End quote. Delando saw that his own Chiampi, so radicalized and demanding of democracy, were a threat to his swag. The representatives, stunned, retreated out of the building. So quickly, Michele Delando had abandoned his own people and his loyalties. To me, this is incredible. How could Delando be so fickle? Suddenly, his own loyalty is only towards the power of the palace that he now inhabits. Goddamn, Delando has been corrupted by power. No, 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 Delando! What are you doing, man? In the minor guilds, like the butchers, for example, were a bit put out by these lesser types. The skinny, craftless people having so much say all of a sudden, didn't they remember their place? The lower and minor guilds started to realign themselves with the major guilds. Uh Uh-oh, I sense a bit of reaction coming. Well, yes, here it comes. It's the 31st of August. All month the Popolo have been gathering outside the Priory, holding debates in the Piazza, meeting across workshops and guilds to make counsel. On this day, Delando arrived in the courtyard on horseback and started the chant of all chants. So everyone cupped their ear to hear him, and what they heard was, Long live the people! And Delando, flanked by his mounted knights, gave a simple and concise order, quote, All the ascended popolo outside the priory must raise their banners to identify themselves, end quote. Uh, what? Okay. But the Chiampi don't have a banner. They're too new to design and make one. This all happened in the past month, but the rest of the guilds did. And they unfurled theirs, and they waved above the uncomfortable piazza, and the Chiampi stood with nothing, and this clearly marked them as outsiders. As the other. The other guilds, tired of the Chiampis agitating, saw them highlighted, saw them apart from themselves, and turned on them, pushing the Chiampi from the piazza as the people began to scream and fight. Dang old labor aristocracy. And when the Chiampi fought back, the crossbowmen stepped forth and fired. The Chiampi ran in terror, betrayed by their champion. Delando, meanwhile, had successfully divided his enemies. Classic move. The threat to his monopoly of power was retreating, defeated, demoralized, confused, and having lost their confidence. 
The next day, in the shadow of this, the government made a declaration. No Chiampi was to hold office, except uh, Delandal, of course, and a couple other hangers-on who seemed like they could play ball were allowed to stay also, but the seats reserved for the wool-carding Chiampi were filled instead by other guildsmen. With this sorted, the Signoria officially abolished the Chiampi Guild. Here today, gone tomorrow, huh? The other two guilds, those of the Dyers and the Guildless, were left untouched for now. And the government of Florence carried on like this for about four years. It's remembered as probably the most democratic in Florence's history, wherein the skinny people are allowed some seats in government, minus the Ciampi, of course, and they actually managed to get a lot done during this time, and solve the crises of the city, resolve the debt by establishing a pretty progressive tax system for the time, one levied on the wealthy. You can do stuff like that when you get the working laborers in government. And Machiavelli, when he wrote his history of the city down the road in the 1500s, reflects sympathetically on the poor, disenfranchised Chiampi, who he acknowledges were fighting for their freedom, versus the oligarchs who were trying to crush it. But nothing is forever, and it wasn't too long before Michele Delando himself was politically isolated and exiled. So long, Delando. And who would rise from the ashes of this political and revolutionary saga and replace Delando as the central figure in Florence? If it isn't old Silvestro de' Medici, sneaking up on the back end and snatching the power for himself, establishing himself as new dictator in the Priory, following the example that Delando had paved the way for. He could not have planned this from the beginning, but this canoodling for power and jockeying intrigue definitely ended up in his favor in the long run. He would eventually lose this power in 1382 when the oligarchic uh, party of major guild arts and powerful families reorganized and pushed his ass out, exiling him from the city. You banned. You banned. You banned. After you this banned. regime, the Priory Oligarchs would roll back the privileges of the other guilds, depicting especially the guildless workers as criminal lowlifes and heretics and all manner of slander. Those oligarchs, specifically, were led by the powerful Albizi family, who had weathered the uprising. With a little bit of patience and a lot of political maneuvering, the wool merchants were back in the pilot seat. But the Medici had their first taste of authority, and damn if they didn't like it. And you really can't keep a good Medici down, as we'll explore in the next episode, where we'll have a good time looking at the family's history, their wacky men and women, and see the family of prominent bankers start to work Florence from behind the curtain, put a pope on the throne, two popes actually, and ask themselves, hey, wouldn't it be nice to be the feudal lords of Tuscany? What's a good sign-off phrase? This is Liam Noble with Folk Pie. See y'all next time. Peace. 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 Peace.